Welcome to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. As always, I'm joined by Peter Willis to discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest 10th round of weekly interviews, conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, Peter. Welcome back. Hi, Seth. Good to be here, always. Feels like I haven't talked to you in a while, but uh, it's the, the weird thing with all of this. You know, some weeks feel compressed and, uh, you know, it was, I can't tell the difference between one day and another, and another weeks feel like they took a year. And this was maybe one of those. It feels like I haven't talked to you in a while, and I was really looking forward to it today. I know just what you mean. So uh, what's been happening, Peter, around the world in, in, um, in the conversations with our participants? What's on your mind today? Well, a lot's been happening. And what we've done is distilled down to three areas that I want to talk about with you. The first one is to do with the time that this crisis is taking and a sense of where we're at and and realizing that the light has not appeared at the end of the tunnel, really, for most of the people I'm talking with, certainly. And what are the implications of that? The second one is about, um, and I suppose you call it human nature playing out in ways that are slightly surprising. But when you think about it, oh, yeah, no, that is actually how humans would respond in a situation like this. You mean like fight or flight? Well, um, we get a bit of that, yes. And then I, I've been asking several of the participants to tell me the story of how they came to be leaders in the particular field that they're in and how they wound up, therefore, being in this position of making decisions as COVID came around. There's some lovely, lovely insights there, which some of which I'd like to share with you. Oh, that's great. Sounds like a, an exciting lineup as usual, but it's actually, it's interesting, you know, that the last point that you just said about, you know, you asking people how they actually came to be in those roles. It's always one of my favorite conversations in, in working with people around the world to find out how they came to be in that space. It's just because the background, the history, the genesis of, of why people are doing the things that they are all so fascinating. But I just, it just made me realize, Peter, I've never asked, how did you end up being a, a reflective listener and coming up with this whole process of listening to people and probing, but gently to kind of help people evolve their way of thinking? I mean, that's not everybody, not everybody does that. How did you end up doing this? Well, well Seth, that you put me in a difficult spot because that's, that's quite a long story, even <laughs> I'm going to give you the micro yeah, give me a, give me the, the the thirty second version. I think if, if if you got to ask everybody that, I get to ask you that. I'm going to just give you the trailer for the movie, which is that my elder sister wrote to me uh, yesterday saying that over the weekend she'd listened to several of our podcasts and she'd really enjoyed them, and she said it took her back to when I was about getting on for two, and she would have been getting on for four. And uh, we would have to spend some time together at different points of the day. And we developed, I dimly remember this, but she remembers it quite clearly, a way of having grown-up conversations where we made up the language because we didn't know how to speak grown-up. And we just knew that grown-ups had these really important conversations. So we were agreeing on the email that she actually was the genesis of all this. Oh, I love it. What a great big sister story. So, but the whole movie, we must have another conversation about that. But the nut, I, I love the nutshell, which is you've literally been doing this since you were two years old, which <laughs> I, I get it. I, now I get it. 
That's, that's the story. Yes. So, um, well, in a funny way, right. Going back to the top of, um, the agenda that you were kind of outlining for us about this just going on and on. So we know you've been doing this since you were two, but bringing this back, I guess, to this this crisis, this pandemic just doesn't seem to be ending. You know, it's hard not to see the news of, of what's happening with this massive surge again in the U S just as we were beginning to open and how sadly unprepared in many cases we still are, but I think people are just really hitting the brick wall on this, Peter. So tell me, how, you know, from a, from a leadership perspective and our participants, how is this resonating or, or how is it landing with our, our participants? I want to share two sort of perspectives. One is a very personal one, and one is really a reflection on organizational leadership at a moment like this. And the personal one comes from uh, Alex in Oakland, who took a break, the first break she's taken in three months where she took a weekend and went cycling with her sister and said it was just fantastic to get away. But come Monday morning, she said it was like she'd been carrying these heavy weights for months and had got used to it uh, because she simply had to. Put them down to go off for a, a weekend with her sister, came back and looked at these weights and said, you mean I've got to pick those up again? It just felt completely beyond her to pick them up. But of course she did. And I spoke to her on Tuesday and she'd sort of found them back on her shoulders and it was fine. But I thought that's a very telling way of uh, that. That is very human. And also it reminded me of the conversation we've had a couple of podcasts ago where we talked about the comparison between the personal underlying conditions and the virus, uh, you know, if you're in poor underlying condition and have got a lot of vulnerabilities, then a virus will find it much easier to get a foothold. And we were comparing that with organizations and cities and so on, that if you've got a lot of vulnerabilities, then when crisis comes, you're going to find it harder to manage. I was just thinking, uh, reflecting on what she told me, that you know, there's this, um, there's been this terror amongst governments around the world that you lock people down, and then you obviously want to unlock them as soon as it's reasonably possible. But then imagine going and and they come out and they go to the park, they go to the beach, they start meeting with each other, back to work, and so on. And then things go bad, you don't manage the virus, and you have to say to them, "Oh, sorry, you're going to have to go back into lockdown again." Nobody wants to go back because they remember what it's like and they remember the loss of income, the loss of contact and so on. Yeah, no, I think it makes a ton of sense, Peter. And, and it's funny how so many of the points that we hear some of our participants do, do, do keep coming back to this analogy of uh, the human body. And then, you know, in this case, you know, if you're going to the gym regularly and you take a, you know, a week off, it's amazing when you go back how much, you know, you've lost and, and you can feel it. But in this case, too, how that might play out in terms of the, the emotional and the psychological weight and exercise, too. It's just a mind-body thing, and it can be challenging. It also struck me listening to you from what Alex said. You, know, you said she took a weekend off, right? Well, normally, people take their weekends off all the time in a situation like this. Yes. I remember people are working seven days a week, and even something as normal as taking a weekend off can provide that, like, that moment of, of that break, but also... Oh man, just like you said, I got to go back and pick this back up with you. I see the same thing potentially happening now in the US. Like people are just getting back to getting out of their homes and, you know, rest, some restaurants for like 50% capacity you need outside. And 
and now it's getting, you know, in some parts of the country again, pretty, pretty bad. And they're having to roll back reopening plans and people are just like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to do this again, which really kind of uh, interesting is that I, I went to a, a local, my local pizzeria here and, uh, I'm friendly with the, with the owner, this great guy. And, and, uh, he's Albanian, you know, he immigrated from Al- Albania and uh, we were talking about this. Um, and he asked me what I'm up to. He's always curious about what I'm doing for work. And I was telling him about this project and, and I asked him how he was dealing with this. And he said, you know, I'm struggling. And I was expecting him to say, you know, the business has been impacted. He's having a hard time. And he said, I'm struggling, Seth, understanding why my fellow Americans are having such a hard time with this. And he's like, I I don't understand why people think this is a hardship. He's like, this isn't a hardship. You know, I, I came from Albania where there was ethnic cleansing and my family barely got out alive. And he pointed to, to somebody who's in the store working with him. And he said, you know, my uncle jumped out of a boat and saved her. She would have drowned in the ocean as we were fleeing. He's like, that's difficult. This is not difficult. I was like, whoa, it just struck me about how much. And this goes back to some of the conversations we had before, Peter, how the shocks and the stresses and how you've been battle tested or not versus those that haven't. Um, and fortunately, you know, many of us have not had to deal with something like seeing your country torn apart and dealing with ethnic cleansing. I mean, that, that is, that's about as, as grim as, as it gets, but for him, you know, this is a scary thing. He was saying that the virus is, is invisible and you can't see your, your enemy. And that is scary. But he said, you know, this is, this is not, this is not the worst of us. We can beat this and we will. And, you know, it was just an amazing kind of personal testimony, but it made me think about this project, Peter. And again, of the underlying conditions of the battle testedness nature of this. And then I really, you know, it is really hard for people who haven't, haven't had to deal with this and, and how challenging this ongoing pandemic is and the uncertainty of it. And it, it is really taking a toll on, on people. Yes. You talk of battle testing and, and sort of muscle memory and, and so on, which we, we talked about a few podcasts ago. And I'm thinking of, um, Craig in the city of Cape Town, and he and his teams went through the the severe um, crisis of the drought two years ago. He's now looking at this moment where we're what sort of a good three months into the COVID nineteen crisis. What's preoccupying him is how does he does he need to restructure the way the city and its various teams function. Because he had, at the beginning of the crisis, he knowing what it's like to run teams during an extended crisis as per the drought, he did a, a, quite a major restructuring of his teams, which he thinks was appropriate and successful. But he was expecting things to be kind of through the system during the next month or two, and his structure would hold. But he's now thinking, no, actually, this is going to be with us for the rest of the year and way into next year. Maybe I need to do a different restructuring so that we can give people some breathing space more, as you say, than just a weekend. Oh, how interesting. So they, yeah, they kind of prepared for when they thought it was going to happen and it's taking longer. So you've got that kind of that tension of when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And that's a whole nother level of pressure. I, I didn't even think about that because they, they really haven't hit peak in South Africa yet, have they? No, in a lot of the um, developing world countries, that's the, the reality. He had a wonderful way of saying this. Um, He he talked about uh, wondering, at what point do we make the transition from crisis leadership 
to pressurized operations sustained over time. That is a great turn of phrase, but that is tricky, right? And I think you've talked about in other conversations, I think maybe with Barbara in the past too, about how do you maintain the compactness um, and the focus of that team under pressure, but now with the recognition that this isn't going to be a short-term high burn thing, this is going to be a, a long-term slow burn. That's that is a whole nother ball game, isn't it? Yep, no, it is. And have any has anybody else been um, been kind of dealing with this? How do you extend this readiness over a longer period of time? In some cases, like in South Africa, where the, the wave hasn't happened, or in other places where there's a second wave coming. Um, anybody else dealing with this that you've been talking to? Actually, what comes to mind when you ask me is Barbara at Siemens US. They, at a global level, took a decision, I think it was about two, maybe even three weeks ago, that they had actually put in place structures and procedures to handle everything that they could see they would need to handle around this COVID-19 crisis. And therefore, they were stepping it down and saying, we are no longer in a crisis. Our organization is not in a crisis about this. We are now managing it. They, in the US, they had this sort of temporary crisis uh, moment around the Black Lives Matter protests and so on, which was recognized globally as something that they needed to do to sort of step up their crisis response again. But I thought that was a really interesting point that just as it's important to know when to go into a crisis and to say, okay, we are now in a crisis mode, so we have to review our normal way of doing things rapidly and come out with some appropriately new ways of doing things. Just as important is to know when to step that down and say, no, we're going to start behaving as normal in these and these areas. You know, <laughs> we do pressurized operations sustained over time, but that's not crisis management. Yeah, really interesting perspective. And, and that makes me think of one of the other things you said you, you wanted to talk about. I think you were talking about human nature and crisis response. And I, I jokingly said fight or flight, but you know, where is that coming in where, where there's this prolonged kind of protracted engagement. And, and I love that term from Craig, that pressurized operations. And then the, the analogy you also shared with Alex about taking the weekend off. And then there might be some people are just, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to that level or I, I need a longer break. How are, how are people dealing with that in all of this? Well, we saw a lot of human nature, which is the, what's the third one? Fight, flight, or begins with F, freeze. Freeze. Fight, oh. flight, or freeze. I think we, in lockdown, we saw a lot of freeze. Um, in fact, there was a global freeze. Good point, Peter. Yeah. Which was really appropriate, and it felt kind of natural. It was, whoops, there's danger, freeze, and we all froze. <laughs> what? What's now starting to come back in is, oh, yeah, so I remember now how humans behave in these kind of situations. I want to tell you a story that um, Tom from WSP in the States shared with me. As you know, he's, his company supplies emergency logistics to government agencies and government departments and states and so on. And um, he took the unusual um, step of leaving his house in order to go and meet with some senior government people in a particular state. because. His team down there said, look, we're losing business to people who have much senior, rep more senior representation here. And so he said, okay, I'll come and sort of meet and we can talk with the, the key government people. And he got off the plane uh, with his mask on and his representative there who drove to meet him very politely said, Tom, you know, I really understand you wearing your mask, but you may want to take it off because where we're going, which actually is the emergency operations center for the state nobody's wearing a mask. Wow. And he said, you've got to be joking. They got in there and 
uh, he realized and he decided, I don't want to make this an issue with the, the very senior people I need to meet with here. So he took his mask off, to use his phrase, I folded. And he clearly felt very conflicted about this. Uh, so there, I mean, I, I just tell the story as, a, as an example of human nature, because as you will know only too well in your country, but it's definitely not only in the States, there are a lot of people who cannot see why they should wear masks. For him, this was a, quite a sort of watershed moment. Yeah, it's really wild how, how wearing these masks and what it means to an individual, what it means to somebody else and what it means to a group of people. And it's kind of like everybody's getting some some pretty hardcore, you know, one on one lessons on social interaction. And in many ways, I think it's quite helpful and healthy because people are, are having to reassess and be more aware and sensitive. Uh, and a similar story, not nearly as much of a in a way as a pressure cooker of what Tom had to do in terms of clients and relationships. But there was a um, person in, in, in my life who just retired a long, great career. And he was after 30 something years of the company and uh, led a group of practice. And those people wanted to surprise him. And he was, there was supposed to be a big retirement party. Couldn't do that. So what his wife ended up doing was holding a surprise party just for the senior management team who had worked for him. And they all came to his, his house and they kind of did this socially distanced in the backyard. And what was interesting is seeing how this, this played out that everybody came and they were wearing masks. The host was kind of saying, Hey, very sensitive. You don't need to wear masks. It's okay. And everybody was like, no, 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 we're fine wearing masks. She was worried that she was, you know, they were all uncomfortable and was trying to impose, Hey, you don't have to, we're outside. We're socially distanced. It's okay. You can be comfortable. They were all really nervous about coming from different, because regional team coming from different parts of the country together and were uncomfortable and wanted to wear masks. And you saw this just kind of play out. Both sides were trying to be conscious of the other side by trying to make them feel comfortable and relaxed. And it ended up being this kind of quiet escalation of like, were you forcing me to not wear a mask? Are you forcing me to wear a mask? Both sides very well intended. And it, it was just this moment of clarity I had. Well, how, man, this is such a simple thing, but it's so complicated now. And whether it's politically driven, emotionally driven, societally driven, just this badge of wearing a mask and or not is rewriting social contract. Yes. And my sense is that it all comes down to your personal assessment of risk and how high the stakes are. If you've made a, an assessment that the risks for you of catching this thing by not being well protected are high or for someone that you love or live with are really high, then you, you do certain things. But if you've made a different assessment, then you're a different actor out there in the, in the world. And you, then, and you then become a problem for the other actors who you come in contact with who may have made a very different assessment. There's no right answer, unfortunately, which is unless you say, well, no, there is a right answer, which is that whatever the government mandates. I agree. It was a, but there's an interesting article I read in, in Forbes last week, and it was kind of making, making the argument kind of exactly what you just said, Peter, which is everybody's coming at a different perspective. Um, we've got to be sensitive and appreciate that. But at the same time, we all need to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable amongst us. So if we all look at this as, as the kind of the point of the article was put aside your own issue and perspective and think about others. And if you think about the people who are the most at risk of this, 
consider them and then choose your behavior, at least when you're out in public together. You know, it's not about whether you're worried about it or not. It's about what they are. And that conclusion will lend to the outcome that you should be wearing your mask. But it, it makes people think about it differently and try to get you out of your own self in terms of thinking about the collective and the, and the societal kind of group protection that we need to, to, we need to offer each other. And if, if we can't do that, we're not going to beat this thing. I, I just love how you tied this section of comments up around human nature and crisis response. Cause it is, it does come back to, to very basic things, doesn't it? It does. Uh, some people have not really developed and a lot of people around the world, I would say have not developed a particularly systematic attitude of care for the other. And they're focused on taking care of themselves, maybe their family and so on. And for, from their perspective, perfectly good reasons. And, and so we are, and yet there'll be other people who read that article and will be nodding furiously and saying, right on, absolutely. We have to consider the weak and the vulnerable. And there are a lot of those people as well, but they, they will make those two groups will make very different decisions. Their default decisions will be very different because of their perspective on who matters in the world. Well said. And have you seen this, this issue play out with any of the participants in terms of how they're dealing with the aspects of human psychology and behavior around kind of grappling with these issues? Well, um, yeah, um, the, I suppose the, the closest to what I've just said about a different sort of value sets, an interesting conversation I had with Anne in Copenhagen, where she'd been on a, a quorum, a meeting uh, with a whole group of fairly senior corporate managers. I think they were talking about the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals and the corporate response going forward, how they were going to promote them and so on. And um, she was saying that there were one or two voices in that call that were really kind of, yeah, saying that they're, they're feeling very proud of the way corporates had handled the coronavirus to the point, and she's, she's said that to me herself in the, in the past, um, that she thinks there have been some really, which I agree with, some really good examples of corporate responsibility uh, at large scale. But she started to pick up this um, sense of there, there, there's a tendency here to slip back into competitive brand puffing up. And these are my terms, not hers. But this sense of when you're a corporate manager amongst other corporate managers you want your your company to look good and you start to believe this sort of story that actually covid-19 was put to bed by the corporates and she was saying yeah we've got to be careful because while the corporations have learned some fantastic lessons about collaboration which they probably wouldn't have learned at this stage without the pandemic there were an awful lot of other societal actors without whom this could have gone a lot worse and so in terms of human nature, I thought that was an interesting reflection of how the roles we take up in our working life can very easily encourage us into forms of human behavior, in this case, sort of narrow competition around, you know, my sector is better than your sector or, and so on. One can lose sight of the bigger picture quite quickly. I think humans are generally pretty good at losing sight of the bigger picture. Yep. I mean, I, for one, can admit to that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's, sure it's commonplace. Speaking of that, I, I was really, really interested in this, in this question you told me that you were asking some of the participants about how they ended up in the role that they're in, how they got there, what they're learning and what they might pass on to other leaders kind of building off of these, these conversations that we've just been having. 
I'm super curious to hear what that question yielded. As you know, you know many of these people that they are very interesting people and they've lived rich lives. And Peter uh, in Australia, in Melbourne, with Arab, he's a very sort of reflective, um, soft-spoken leader. When I asked him this question and he was telling me how some of his background and his sort of fundamental approach to leadership, one of the things he was saying is that for him, the core of being a leader is not to think you're a manager for a start, which is such an obvious point to make. But actually, I'm sure that a lot of leaders underperform as leaders because they slip back into management. He actually said, time like this, the people you lead want you to lead. And I thought, that's something I would want sort of chalked up on the inside of my forehead if I was a leader of a large organization. He also talked about the, the importance of, for him, his character is, tells him that in a crisis, I'm the, the last one to panic. I'm the one who's going to be saying, okay, we have a problem. How are we going to think this through together? And then he will calmly facilitate the conversations that will get them to that, that point. And I would say that all the, the people that we've got in this group who are leading large organizations have that quality. And the way Tom uh, WSP talked about it was more through the lens of his being a very avid team sport player right from his childhood. And he loves being right at the forefront and, as he puts it, badgering the referee and criticizing the umpire if they don't think that he doesn't think the decision's right. And so, but he realized when he came into the corporate world as a young engineer, he quickly realized that. The idea of sort of taking over, saying, oh, no, I know how to do this. It's okay, let me handle it, and so on. Might work when you're 15 on the football field, but it absolutely won't work in a large organization. And so he, he puts right at the top of his list of qualities that he's learned as a leader is patience. And he's got multiple stories of how when he knew he wanted something to happen in the organization, but he didn't have the power to make it happen, but he could see conversations which if he had in a sequence with different people might get the change he was after. So there was this sense of when you're, for most of your working career, you're going to be a small cog in a large machine. You're going to be a small, an organism within a larger body. And Steve uh, in the World Bank echoed this in an interesting way because he, he said, look, I, I studied large institutions. I actually, I believe in the power of institutions. I'm an institutionalist. Because of the power that big institutions can exert to bring about change, which no amount of individual or small group activity can achieve. And he has spent a lot of his time in the World Bank because his big thing is climate change policy and finance. And he has made it his mission to help climate activists within NGOs and also within city organizations to patiently unravel the institutional knots that need to be understood and patiently unraveled if you're going to have any kind of effect on the way policies are created and projects are financed, which he says is painfully slow business because the, so many of these organizations think that if they shout loud enough, big institution will jump. And uh, I thought that was a very, very valuable, having spent many years in NGOs. Very insightful. Yeah. 
you do feel very self-righteous. Uh, in the NGO world, you feel, I got a piece of the truth here, and that big, fat organization there have lost the truth. It's my job to go and fix them. He carries around the antidote to that, which is patience and learn the institutional landscape, the ecosystem, get to understand it, and you'll be much more effective. I feel like we could probably talk for an entire hour just about these insights of how these these individuals got to where they are and, and what they see as being kind of key ingredients to successful leadership. We might need to consider a special episode just on this, Peter. Yeah, I've still got a few to have that conversation with. So, um, yeah, there will be more. Fantastic. Well, um, thanks again. As, as usual, I can't believe the time has, has flown this quickly. Um, fascinating conversation to hear about this and and the prolonged pressure of operating under these circumstances and, and the, the human response systems now kind of kicking in. I, I love to kind of this fight or flight or freeze that you added um, in, in how we're all dealing with this at multiple levels. So as, as usual, super fun conversation and, and crammed with insights, Peter. So thanks again. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you next week. Ditto, Seth. I really look forward to it. You have a good week in between. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on Insights from Round 10. Thank you for joining us again. If you liked what you've heard and want to hear more, please check out our previous episodes with Weekly Insights. Believe it or not, we've been recording Weekly Insights for over two months now, so over four hours of insights on resilient leadership. Good company on a rainy afternoon. You can find these episodes on our project page or in our podcast stream. Links are in the episode notes. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of The Resilient Shift. See you next week. 